Christmas carols during this uh, service is not to test the statute of limitations on how far we can sing Christmas carols past uh, the new year. But rather, we are in the Gospel of Luke, and we've started that series. And so, seemingly miraculously and imperceptibly, the God of the universe has put on flesh. And yet we have not understood that. We have, it has been, it's, as I said, it's, it's imperceptive. God has invaded history in the form of a helpless baby. Born not to a family of wealth or power or influence, but rather one of meager resources and descendants of a dead dynasty. One whose birth has not been hailed by the powerful and the elite, the spiritual leaders of the day, but rather insignificant and even despised shepherds. But make no mistake, his mission is to come and gather the sheep to himself. So today, we're going to see how he reveals himself to a couple of people that have desperately and diligently been longing to see the Messiah. And they will see his true identity revealed to a few who will listen. But indeed, his coming also reveals in our hearts how we relate to a holy God and our need for a Savior. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. I already dismissed the kids for children's church. Yes. Thank you, my wife. It's good to have your voice, but I did miss this already. So, Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 21 through 39. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus. The name that the angel had given him before he was conceived. And when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said of the law of the Lord. A pair of doves or two pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He had, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. 
She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming to them that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking toward the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required of the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and continue in God's Word. Lord Jesus, what an amazing thing that you came and you put on flesh and you dwelled among us. You came to rescue us because we needed a Savior. Would you open our eyes now as we look in your word, that we might see what you have for us. That we might see that you are the Savior that we need. And as you reveal our hearts, would you give us grace to respond to you rightly. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here who does not know you yet, I pray that you would open the eyes of their heart. That you would graciously allow them to put their faith in you and draw them to yourself and make them your child. But we want to see you, Lord, today. So, Lord, show us what you have for us in your word. And it's in Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Well, of all the Gospels, Luke provides us with the most information about Jesus' birth, about his nativity, and about his early childhood. It's not long and extensive, but there's some specific snapshots in there to tell us about who Jesus is. To answer the question, what child is this? as the Christmas carol would say, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, God who put on flesh. Before we get into this passage, I guess the meat of it, I want to make a couple observations here. And I think these are important here. Number one, Jesus, the Christ, keeps the Mosaic law. As you look at the first verses of this passage, verses 21 through 24, in verse 21, he is circumcised on the eighth day, which is commanded in, in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3. And again in Leviticus chapter 12, there is a prescribed purification period after a woman has a, a son. 33 days after that, after the first seven days, after the boy is named, then she is to keep herself secluded. And then at the end, to present the firstborn child, because every firstborn child is sacred uh, and consecrated to God, as Exodus 13 talks about. But the woman is to offer purification for herself, which is either a lamb or, if you're poor, a couple pigeons or a couple doves. So this shows us that Jesus' family is not a rich, well-to-do family that he is born into. But here's the point. While the law does not bring salvation, because none of us can keep it, God does not skip or skimp on his standard for his son. He doesn't cheat, give Jesus a pass. 
Because Jesus is here to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is here to actually fulfill the law. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 will say, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. No, I've come to fulfill it. Jesus is here to fulfill all righteousness. He is the only one who can keep the law. And so another way to frame it is what the Apostle Paul will say in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But in the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption through sonship. And this is even apparent. Jesus keeps the law even in his birth. But here's something more significant, and I didn't, I didn't notice this until I'd gotten into this study, that God provides witnesses to the Christ according to the law. Hear me out. Some of you folks that have been in the Bible a few times, right? According to the law, if something is to be witnessed to in the court, how do you do it? You have to have two or three witnesses, don't you? Two or three witnesses. God has provided witnesses to his Christ in Anna and Simeon. They're devout. It says of Simeon, verse 25, he's righteous and devout. Anna, in verse 36, is a prophetess. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Both were aged. You know, it's revealed to Simeon that he's not going to die before he sees God's Messiah, God's chosen one. And Anna, it's interesting how the NIV, this NIV is probably not an accurate translation. So, okay. So it says that she was married seven years to her husband. Okay, so she probably got married as a teenager somewhere in there. Okay. And then 84 years, she was a widow. So let's just say she got married at 15, okay? Seven years, married at 21, was a widow. And then the next 84 years was a widow. She's probably about 105, 106 years old. The Scripture says that she was very old. 84 is not very old. 106, 105, that's very old, okay? But here's the thing. The reason why the scripture highlights this is not because there's some old codger, you know, senile people. He highlights this because in that, in that day, in that society, they honored and venerated old age. These were people full of wisdom, full of life, and their testimony was something that needed to be listened to. So their age was a, was an asset. It wasn't a liability. Number three, both of them were waiting for God to meet them. In verse 25, Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That is God's people. Anna is looking to tell everyone about who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Both of them are looking for God to do something. By the way, Jerusalem represents where God dwells in his temple. And folks, as far as this period of history, they had seen a lot. If Anna really is 105, 106 years old, she had seen a lot. The end of the Hasmonean dynasty, which were the Maccabees, 
the over the rise of Herod the Great to power and the influence of, of Rome coming and invading Israel, the refurbishing of the temple, all these things, some of them maybe positive progress, some negative progress, the rise of the Pharisees, the rise of the Sadducees, the rise of the Zealots who wanted to kick the Romans out, and the rise of the Essenes who basically wanted to say, okay, well, we'll, we'll just build our own society off and, and become the hermits. But none of that, none of that, they were not looking to those things. They were looking to the Lord himself to meet them, and he does. He does. By the way, here's, here's a thought just real quickly about Anna. She was fasting and praying. If any of you are in the habit of, of fasting, you do it when? When things are going famously and everything is good and you're fat and happy? No, you do it in a time when you say, God, things are not right. And I'm crying out to you, things are not right. Anna was crying out saying, God, you need to come. You need to deal with this. That's what she was looking for. And again, God meets her with himself. And both are moved by the Holy Spirit to reveal something they do not know in themselves. Simeon is moved by the Holy Spirit in verse 27, and he went into the temple courts, and God shows him. And then Anna is coming up to them in verse 36 at the very moment, and she gives thanks to God. God, thank you. You've given me what I've been longing for. And spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. She didn't know Joseph and Mary from Adam. But God showed her. And in turn, she turns around and shows others. And if you count the presence of the Holy Spirit in each one of these witnesses, then there are three witnesses, aren't there? Anna, Simeon, and the Holy Spirit. Legally testifying according to the law of God, about the Son of God, in the house of God, by the Spirit of God, before the people of God. And this movement of the Holy Spirit really anticipates and realize, Luke writes both Acts and Luke, anticipates God's pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the early church and the people of God. In Acts 2, 17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons, your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. So God has provided both to fulfill his law and a witnesses according to his law. But I want to spend the remainder of this time really drilling down on, on Simeon's testimony. And it is in a very emotional moment in, in salvation history. But some very important things are revealed about who Christ is, what he's come to do. And again, it reveals the significance of what's going on in our own hearts as we realize who he truly is. So number one, I want to start with this. Salvation is a person. Salvation is a person. Back to verse 28. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, you have promised you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Can you imagine 
this old man now holding this 40-year-old child in his arms now and looking down and the Holy Spirit just whispering to him, it's him. It's all that you've been waiting for. He's finally here. All that time he's wondering, did I miss it? No, it's here. It's in his arms. And he won't live to see it pan out. He won't live to see what Jesus will do, what he will grow up to be. But all of his hopes and dreams are wrapped up in that little baby. Jesus. Yeshua. Which means God or Yahweh is salvation. Think about that. God, Yahweh, is salvation. God sent himself to be the Savior. Yes, salvation does have to do with what the Savior will do. And what the Messiah certainly does have a mission. But there's only one person qualified. Only one person qualified that can come and make peace between sinful man and a holy God. Only one able to bring about that salvation, that reconciliation. And that's someone who is both God and man. The Apostle Paul expressed it this way, 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. That is the man, Christ Jesus. And by the way, that's why we as Christians make such a big deal about Jesus. That's why we talk about him so much. It's like, why do Christians keep talking about Jesus? Because he's what God provided. He's the only one who can do it. He's the only one who can bridge that gap. He's the only provision for salvation and reconciliation. And it is based on what he will accomplish. But there's no one else who can accomplish it. I have seen your salvation. And that moment is just wrapped up in a baby boy. But Simeon has more to reveal. Number two, salvation is for all. Continuing on, I have seen your salvation, verse 31, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation for, to the Gentiles and glory of your people, Israel. See, he's not just the Savior. He's not just the Messiah. He's not just the Christ of the Jews. He is the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah of all mankind. Men and women made in the image of God. And there is enmity, there is animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the thought to have those two parties come together almost seems like a pipe dream. But this is God's plan, His plan of redemption. And He says that He is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Really parroting what God had said already to Isaiah in chapter 42.6 and 49.6. Listen to this. He says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. I'm sure it was much easier, it's much easier for us on, on this side of history, on this side of the scriptures to see this. It required a lot more faith 
or how it was to unfold. But it was never God's intention when he revealed himself to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Israel for God to stop his revelation with the people of Israel and his salvation. No, it was his intent that they be a conduit of that revelation, of that salvation, that it might go to all nations, all men and women. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is the one who removes the barrier of hostility and makes all who will place their faith in him the people of God. The Apostle Paul, who was a Jew himself, a Jew of Jews, in fact, is what he calls himself before he comes to Christ. In Ephesians, he says in chapter 2, verse 14, For he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier dividing the, the dividing wall of hostility. And then later on in the letter, verse 19, Consequently, talking to the Gentile believers, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. You see, Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ for all people. Well, in verse 33, He states this, Simeon states this, excuse me, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said. At this point, Joseph is on board about being the stepson, stepfather, I should say, of the, fa- of, of the Son of God. But, you know, think about if you know what's happened already in the Gospel of Luke. For Joseph and Mary at this point, it just must seem like this is unreal. It's a wild ride. I mean, we're talking about a miraculous pregnancy, an arduous trip to Bethlehem, a precarious location to give birth, a wondrous story of the shepherds about the angels, and now this marvelous prophecy about all that this boy will bring about. And Simeon will bless them in verse 34, but then he prepares them, especially Mary, for what's to take place next. Because it's not all roses and sunshine. In fact, it's going to be very costly. See, salvation ultimately is about restoration, about reconciliation. And there's a cost that is paid within that. It's going to cost Jesus his life. It's going to cost Mary as well. And there's a dark side, if you will, to salvation. First of all, that this child is destined to cause the rise and fall of many in Israel. Remember, he's just a baby, he's just a boy, but this is a prelude to what his ministry is going to look like. When Jesus starts his ministry, oftentimes he'll be questioned. And who he hangs out with seem to be questionable people. His healing and deliverance that he brings is often attributed to the gates of hell rather than the spirit of the living God. And the authority that he claims to have seems outrageous. His motives are maligned. You know what's ironic about this whole thing? That Jesus the Messiah, God's anointed one, is most often rejected by the spiritual leaders of the people. They're the ones who are most hostile to him. 
They're the ones that should be welcoming him. They're the ones who should be saying they should know better. But they're threatened in their position, in their power, and they're willing to perjure themselves, and they're willing to put him to death. Those who are supposed to be helping to build the kingdom of God were actually in opposition. (laughs) But God is still using even their opposition to bring forth his kingdom. On the flip side, Jesus takes 12 ordinary men. Some are fishermen. One's a tax collector. Another's a former zealot. Just ordinary guys. And he uses them as his disciples. Eventually they become his apostles, his sent ones, and they turn the world upside down. The mighty Roman Empire is never the same because of what Jesus does in the hearts and lives of those men. God is taking what is despised, what is ignored by this world, and uses it for his glory because it's dependent upon him and his power rather than their own. Number two, he becomes a sign to be spoken against. When we think about Jesus Christ, what symbol do we think of the most? It's right behind me. The cross. When you think about Jesus Christ today, 2,000 years later, it is the cross. It's the place where he ends up. It's the place where he brings salvation. We're going to celebrate that a little bit later today. But it's the symbol that's associated with Christ. Paul says, I chose to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified as we went through the letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 23. But that's not oftentimes received well, is it? It's a stumbling block to the Jews. Because in their mind, anyone who ends up on a cross or hung on a tree is cursed. And it's true. Jesus became a curse for us in order that we might have his blessing. For, for the Gentiles or the Greeks, it's just foolishness. It's just throwing this life away. Because this is all there is, right? Not so. But the Apostle Paul goes on in that same letter, the next verse to say, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is the one who brings us salvation. It seems like apparent foolishness, but all the wisdom of God is in Christ and Him being on the cross, paying our penalty. So as we continue on here, verse 35, I want to read what the NIV says. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul. It's interesting, in the Greek, I I think the NIV did that to help us understand that, but in the Greek, actually those are, are flipped. It starts out with Mary, Mary's own soul being pierced. A sword will pierce Mary's soul. This is the cost that Mary pays as the mother of the Messiah. First of all, just to release him to public ministry. Just to release him. We're actually going to be talking about that a little bit next week too. But to release him. It's it's interesting, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 3, there's a point where Jesus has started his public ministry. And it's 
I hate to use this word, but it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's frenetic. It's, it's chaotic. He's casting out demons. People are getting healed. But it's to the point where people are just demanding everything on his time. It's just to, it's to the point where his own disciples who are around him, they, can only, they can't even eat. The people have such demands on him. And his family comes to try and take charge of him. Oh, Jesus, you're out of... This has gone too far. This is too nuts. We're going to take charge. And so somebody says to him, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers and my sister? It's those who do the will of God. That's who my mother, my brother and my sisters are. And I'm sure that must have hurt. Because Jesus had to distance himself from his own earthly family because they were getting in the way of the ministry. And then, you know the end of the story, Mary will be there when Jesus goes to the cross. In John chapter 19, she's standing there. And that is where, I'm sure, a sword pierces her own soul. Not only the pain of outliving a child, But think of all the hope, all the promises, all the prophecy about this child. And now he ends up on a Roman cross. All that just must have evaporated at that moment. Mary paid a price to be the mother of the Messiah. It's part of the dark side of salvation. You see, it's one thing to say, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be done unto me as has been said. That's what Mary said when she first found out about Jesus. That she's going to carry Jesus. It's another thing to know that your son will be God's suffering servant. We'll have to take that penalty on himself. I don't know if you've seen the the movie The, The Passion of the Christ. And it is a brutal movie. So unless you have kind of prepared your heart and your mind, I I recommend that you don't watch it until you're ready to see it. But there's a moment in there where Jesus is carrying his cross. And he's being put on the cross. And he says to his mother, Behold, Mom, I make all things new. And that's what Jesus had to do. To buy us. It was for our salvation. It was for our sake. But Mary had to bear that burden to watch her son die there was a very human side to jesus dying on the cross i praise god that's not the end of the story but it's part of the story right but here's here's the bottom line the connection here and a sword will pierce your soul they're connecting The the connecting statement after that is this. That the thoughts and hearts of men will be revealed. You see, the cross ultimately is a great revealer. It reveals what's going on in our hearts. It reveals, what are you doing with Jesus and what he's done for you? You see, our world has no problem with saying Jesus is a great teacher He's a great example. 
We don't have a problem of saying he started his own religion. But to say that you need Jesus, or you are eternally lost, that's offensive. That's offensive. Because it means we don't have it. And something within us makes us want to say, yeah, I do. I'm as good as the next guy. You might be. But God's not grading on that curb. He's grading on His own righteousness. And we fall short. And it offends us. It offends us because we think somehow we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And we cannot. cross reveals that in our heart. Our own addiction to our own goodness. But what it also reveals is that we really don't want God to have any claim on our life to begin with. The Gospel of John in chapter 3 verse 19 says, This is the verdict that light has come into the world, but people of darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Folks, The light has come. The light has come. But many of us would just prefer to live in the dark. Because we we don't want it exposing that we're doing our own thing. We have a Savior who blows our cover. Because we don't want Him to take charge. We don't want Him to be Lord. We want to be lords of our own lives. And it shows that our ultimate problem is not something outside of ourself, something that's oppressing us or hurting us, although that might be true. And that is sin in itself. It's in our problem is our rebellion against the Holy God, insisting on doing things our own way. And it seems like it puts us right back in the garden, doesn't it? Having made a choice to say, no, God, I'm not going to obey you. I'm going to choose my own way. I want to be wise. I'll make my own choice. And the result is death and alienation. But folks, I'm not here to proclaim bad news. I'm here to proclaim good news. Because here's the thing. The cross, the cross puts us in a place to choose God all over again. Because He's made a way. He has made a way for us to have life instead of death. To have reconciliation instead of alienation. That's what the cross ultimately reveals. How far God would to go to bring us back to Himself. That He would put on flesh, live this life, go to the cross, die a humiliating death, and then rise from the dead to conquer sin and death. And now the choice is before you again. Will you choose life and reconciliation? Or choose death of doing your own thing. 
That's the gospel. That's the good news. God has made a way for you to have life and for you to have reconciliation. The first epistle of John, John chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 11 and 12 say this. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and that life is in His Son. But then it goes on to say, He who has the Son, she who has the Son, has life. But he or she who does not have the Son does not have life. I pray today that if you've not made that choice, that today that you would choose life. That you would choose life. The same author said, To as many as received him, even those who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become the children, the sons and daughters of God. Hmm. I pray that would be true of you today. And now we're going to celebrate what God has done to give us life. Yes, the dark side. Jesus went to the dark side and offered himself up for us in order that we might have life. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I want to tell you here at Berean, we practice what I call open communion. That means if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are welcome at this table. It's not my table. It's not the table of the Berean Community Church. It's the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he invites you here to participate.